Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. All right, saints, we are getting back into the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. We're old school around here, so bring your physical Bible so you can spend time and then together you can study and look into it, and then at home you have history in the pages of your Bible. I encourage you to do that. We do have some free Bibles around the church, and then we have study Bibles of different versions in the resource center out there. The other thing is we do remember our team in Guam. Those of you that have been following the saga, they got stranded in Houston. I was talking with Vince this morning, and I'm sure that they were wishing that it could have been Hawaii. Rather, you know, you get a choice. You want to be stranded for two days in Hawaii or Houston, and they got Houston. So our prayers are with them, and thankfully on the other end in Guam, they were able to move some dates around, and they have 50 young people signed up for a conference there, and we're just going to be praying. I know many of you have signed up. We've signed up to pray and fast for them, and so we look forward to the stories. And then Luke and Yosef, we're supposed to get in late last night from Albania and other places, and they got stranded somewhere else. In Denver, I think it was. So they're back today. So lots of coming and going. We want to be ascending church. So if you want to look at your Bible, Acts 17, 16 to 34. We're getting back into our series on Acts, which we will finish about the middle of this next year. And we take sustained time in the scriptures because it strengthens the church. Did I say next year? Thank you, Wallace. Goodness gracious, last week. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth, right? Last week was inner healing in two days or whatever it was, and it was two months. So thank you. I love it when people yell out. Acts 17, 16 to 34, and what we're seeing in the book of Acts, it was outlined in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told those early disciples, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you are going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as the book of Acts unfolds, that's precisely what happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out in chapter 2, Pentecost, and the church becomes a Pentecostal people at that point, and so they're empowered, they're anointed to continue the ministry of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, and those circles, those concentric circles where the gospel is going into different regions continues to grow and grow and grow to this day. And so the gospel is going forth in great power, the gospel of the kingdom. And what we're seeing is the book of Acts, there's no better model. Would you agree, church? If we want to know and we want to be the kind of church that Jesus wants, then we 
saturate our minds in the Word of God and we look at the only inspired account of church history that we have, and that is the book, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the early disciples and through us. Today we're going to see the gospel, paganism, and philosophy in the city of Athens. I just want to sit with that for a moment. The gospel, paganism, and philosophy. And we're going to see that Paul is a model for us. He's going to bring the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ crucified and resurrected in this place called Athens, which was known for being a very cultured and refined and philosophically savvy place. And so Paul is going to contextualize the gospel. He's going to acknowledge that there's a different context than those he's been presenting the gospel in, but he's not going to compromise the gospel at all. And so what we have here is a little summary, a synopsis of Paul's message. And before we look at this, what do I mean by paganism? Paganism means many things, but in the ancient world, for Christians around the third or fourth century, they used that term to describe anything outside of Christianity. And so the word literally means uh, a dweller of a farm. And so it meant people outside the city. And so around the third or fourth century, Christians began to use that term. It was those who are not Christian. It's those who are polytheistic, those who believe in many gods. And we'll be looking at some terms like that. And so that's what I mean. You've got Paul the Apostle going into Athens with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's butting up against paganism and against philosophy, the love of wisdom, which is what that Greek word means. Now, I want us to see this morning at every turn, okay? What we try to do is look at the text, we look at the passage, and we try to make sense of it. What what was it saying then for the people? But friends, because it's a living and active word, it has something to say to us, doesn't it? So we want to just be thinking this morning the gospel interacting with paganism and with philosophy. Now many of you know the word paganism has been negative in the past, but now there's an embracing of that word, isn't there? You can hear people say, I'm a pagan. I'm a part of a neo-pagan movement. And so there's great pride in it, and at the core of that really is a rejection of the Christian faith. They're basically saying, I am not monotheistic, I do not believe in one God, and I do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I actually am embracing nature religions, I'm embracing other religious traditions. As a matter of fact, I might be worshiping myself, which is Luciferian, isn't it? That was at the heart of what Lucifer was all about, is I will be God, I will be exalted. So in that context, we're seeing Paul bring the gospel of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. And what we're gonna look at here is Paul is going to see and feel certain things. It's the verbs in the text. Then he's going to do certain things and then he's going to say certain things. So we're gonna be looking at what Paul saw and felt and did and said. And this comes from a wonderful Anglican evangelical uh, pastor and preacher named John Stott. He actually comes up with that outline, and I've used it and adapted it. So, Lord, we pray as we look at your word, as we read your word, 
that you would show us afresh what the gospel is. Lord, the good news of the kingdom of God, of King Jesus. And Lord, we say that your word, the word of the kingdom is like fire. And it's like a hammer that shatters rock. And so we ask you to bring the anointing of your word today as we look at Holy Scripture together. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. So I'm going to read the first part of the passage and we're going to walk through it and look first of all at what Paul saw and felt and then what he did. So beginning at verse 16 and chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and we'll learn who them is, it's Timothy and Silas and the others, he was alone. He was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Friends, this is the word of God. And so we're going to look at, in this first verse there, look at verse 16. This is what Paul saw and felt. He's going to see idolatry. He arrives to Athens alone. Silas and Timothy, in the previous part of chapter 17, were with him in Berea. And now he's waiting for them, and he's walking around the streets of Athens. This is a famous, legendary city. And he would have heard about it since he was a little boy. And I've got a slide up here so you can see what it looks like now and what it looked like. There's some 3D imaging that they've created. I mean, it is majestic. Look at that, friends. Little side note here. I was able to go to Athens in 1983, and I got lost in the city. So every time I see a picture of that, I remember being 13 years old, wandering the streets, lost for several hours. Rock and Bev were there. They were leading the trip. And somehow my parents found me, and it was quite amazing. So it, I was able to see it is a glorious city. Look at that. And that's illuminated at night there, the Parthenon. And so Paul was strolling the streets. He had heard about this amazing city, and the, the glory of Athens was waning some, but nonetheless, it was beautiful. And he, I'm certain that he was thinking about all the history in the city these great thinkers and philosophers that we know about to this day, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, 700 years before him, they were walking those streets. And he was seeing the architecture and appreciating it, but his response was not, wow, this is amazing. Look at these architectural feats. Paul's response 
was that he was deeply distressed. He was provoked, troubled in his spirit as he saw a city filled with idols. And the language here, friends, literally means that the the city was smothered with idols. The city was like a forest of idols. And so in his spirit, he was sensing the oppression of the people. And he was feeling probably what Moses and Elijah did when they encountered idols, when Moses saw the people of God exchanging the glory of God for a golden idol. He was troubled deeply in his spirit when Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18 saw the people leaving Yahweh, their covenant with Yahweh and going after Baal. He was troubled in his spirit and so Paul in that same tradition is deeply distressed And he was looking around, and I'm sure because Paul meditated on the scriptures regularly, he was calling to mind passages like this, Isaiah 42, where God looks at idolatry and says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my praise to idols. And so Paul felt disgust and brokenheartedness in his gut. It was so much so that it's famous, these sayings. There's a a philosopher 400 years before Paul was there, and he said this of Athens. Athens is one great altar. It is one great ongoing sacrifice. One of the comedians back in ancient Athens said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So friends, this place was suffused. It was permeated with temples and shrines and altars, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus. And we saw that, let's go back to that Parthenon there, which literally means the the temple of the young maiden. And right in the center of that temple, atop the Acropolis there, the highest point in the city, was a 40-foot statue of Athena. And apparently, ancient writers have said that, why don't we find the other one? I think there's one last one here. This is a 3D rendition. Just trying to paint the picture. You can see that there. That's what it would have looked like. And you can see that statue of Athena there. And she's holding a spear. And apparently, the gold of the spear could be seen for over 10 miles. And so people would pull into the port of Greece at Athens, and they could see the glint of the spear there. So the point of all that, they put great effort and money, time and energy into this and it made Paul's stomach churn. Why do you think that is? He didn't like architecture. He didn't like statues. He didn't like beautiful art. Was that it? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 8? What's behind every idol? A demon. So Paul is looking across the city of Athens in all of its glory, all of its majesty, and he's saying, my heart is broken. These people are oppressed. The city is filled with idols, and therefore the city is filled with demons. 
Paul, being a good Jew that he was, was clear on this from Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 32, other places in the Old Testament, it made it clear that you're not just worshiping a statue, but you're actually giving worship, attributing worship that should go to God to a demonic presence. So friends, this is a startling picture, and Paul is looking at Athens like a battlefield. He's seeing the battle for people's hearts and souls and bodies being waged against these people, and he's saying they need the gospel. They need to be set free. They need to hear about the crucified and resurrected Jesus. So what I want us to ask here for a moment, I want us to sit, is as you look at the permeation of our culture with idolatry and therefore demons, what do you think and feel? Do you think and feel as you look at that? This week, this passage has challenged me deeply. As I look around, I look into my own heart and I see things that need to be purified, tendencies toward idolatry that I have, but then I look at the greater culture, even here in Oklahoma City and Edmond and other places, friends, our country is given over to idolatry. Is that right? I mean, think about what forms of idolatry, worship of self, pursuit of sensual pleasure, wealth, influence, power, control. I mean, you fill in the blank. I mean, we are like Athens, are we not? Filled with idolatry. And so I want to invite us as a church to let it touch our hearts. For you this week to even ask the Lord, Lord, give me your heart so that I can see and feel the way that Paul did. I want to to feel your heart, and I want to be a part of the spiritual battle, and I actually want to be part of bringing the gospel of the kingdom and pulling people away from idols and demons so that they worship the true and living God. And we know from Matthew 4, what was it that Satan, in his final temptation to Jesus in Matthew 4, what did he say? Fall down and what? Worship me. So Satan and his kingdom and all false gods and deities, he wants worship from people. So our message is you can't have it. We worship the true and living God. We worship the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and we invite the world to cough up, to vomit out its idolatry, and to turn to the living God through Jesus. Amen? So Paul, that's one verse there. 16, what Paul saw and felt. Verses 17 through 21, what did Paul do? Look at verse 17, the next verb there. What's it say, church? He argued. And so Paul was reasoning and arguing with the people. But this word here can sound rather strange. He wasn't sitting around and debating necessarily. He was building bridges, finding common ground acting constructively, not just being troubled in his spirit, but actually saying, now I'm going to go out and engage the people in conversation. I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to reason in the synagogue where there's Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but then he's going to move out from there into the broader city. And we look at verse 18, there's Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who are debating with him. 
Who are these people? A good study Bible will explain to you, but very briefly, an Epicurean, these were two of the most influential schools of philosophy in that day. The Epicureans were all about avoiding pain. And they were pursuing pleasure in their lives. They didn't deny that God existed, but they thought God is not involved in human everyday affairs. They were materialists. They didn't believe necessarily in the supernatural realm as much as the material realm. Sound familiar? We have some Epicurean influences in today's culture, don't we? How about the Stoics? The Stoics were all about, we've got expressions, right? You're such a Stoic. He's a Stoic, she's a Stoic. These people were seeking self-mastery and they were indifferent to pain and to pleasure. And interestingly, this is important to know because it will help make sense of what Paul brings in his message, they were pantheists. And that's pantheist, meaning God is all and God is in all. And they were committed to that unity between God and humanity. They thought actually that we have a divine spark inside of us. And so your goal is to nurture that divine spark and become more and more godlike. So this is the context that Paul is in. And they say something that's not very nice about him there in the middle of verse 18, don't they? What does this babbler want to say? The word literally means a bird that picks up seeds. So they're saying you are like a little sparrow that's picking up seeds of ideas and kind of sharing them and parroting them. You don't have any ideas of your own. You're not very impressive philosophically. As a matter of fact, they say you're a proclaimer of strange foreign deities. And look at that little comment there. This was because Paul was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. These people were so clueless, friends, that they thought Paul was talking about Jesus. That's one God. And he apparently seems to be an overcomer of death. And then he's also proclaiming a goddess named resurrection. I mean, the people just could not get it straight. Here they were living in this forest of idols and they were projecting onto Paul and he was going to bring it. He was going to clarify after this. But he was brought to the Areopagus and I've got another image up here. Lots of words for us to learn today from Greek culture, right? Fun? And the Areopagus is the hill of Ares. Let's see if we can find that. It looks like stones with people sitting on it. See those stones? Aren't they amazing? <laughs> this would have been the Areopagus and inside the temple there and then there's a, a more modern picture when all of this crumbles and falls to the ground. But Paul would have just been in this courtyard area, this colonnade, sharing his ideas and they're saying, you're like a bird. Another, I read it, someone else that said it was like, they're saying Paul is like someone who picks up cigarette butts, walks along and picks up the cigarette butts of other people and smokes those. So they're using this pejoratively to say that he doesn't have much to say. But friends, he gets in the middle of this conversation, which at one point would have been a council where the people would have gathered together and there would have been authorities there that would have actually tried people like Paul for what he was saying and doing and held him accountable, but that was not the case here. It was still a famous hill where they would gather together and hear new ideas. 
But Paul was practicing in that moment what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, I proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul was in that moment doing the best that he could to build bridges, to find common ground, to quote from some of their philosophers. But friends, he brought the word of the cross. Some misread this passage. It's an abbreviated passage. Think about it. Paul would preach so long that people would fall out of windows onto the ground because he was so full of the word of God. So this is very abbreviated. This is an abbreviated rendition. And so you can be certain that as he talked about Christ raised from the dead, it necessarily means that he brought the full message of Christ crucified and Christ raised. And so as we look at this, we see the amazing example of Paul. I just want to ask you, are you building bridges with people during the week? Do you seek to find common ground, entry points, ways of sharing the message, the glorious message of Jesus Christ, of him crucified, of him resurrected, of him ascended, of him coming again, because that's what Paul is going to model for us here. We've got to be careful here. He's not contextualizing and compromising and being a softy at all. He does those things. He finds the common ground, speaks their language, but at the same time, he brings boldly and courageously the message of Christ crucified as an example for us. The last thing here, verses 22 through 31, let's read it before we take communion. This is what Paul said, and it is glorious. Verses 22 through 31, and then they're going to respond in different ways. But So Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Then at verse 26, from one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though he indeed is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Then look at verse 30. While God has overlooked the times of ignorance, 
human ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So friends, he sees and feels, he builds bridges, and then now Paul says something. He speaks a message to them, and it is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now some of you might say, well, sounds a little bit different than earlier chapters in Acts. Anyone else think that? A wonderful study, and this is what we're doing together, is we're asking, what is the gospel? And so we get to see the way that these early disciples and apostles preached the gospel. And friends, this is in a different key. Would you agree? This sounds different, feels different, and it's basically two main points. Paul says at verse 24, God is the creator and Lord of all, including you. And we're going to see in that he's the director of human history. And the second thing he says at verse 30 is that God will judge the world through the man Jesus, who he has raised from the dead. So that was Paul's gospel in that moment. God's created all of these things, including you. He's directing human history toward a particular point when we'll all stand before the judge, the Lord Jesus. And that was his message to the people of Athens in the Areopagus. And it's very nuanced, and there's all kinds of things that he says in there. Verse 24, and look at verse 25. He's basically, can you imagine, he's there, and he's pointing to the Parthenon, that 40-foot statue of Athena, the massive structure, and he's saying, you know what? God does not dwell in any of this stuff. All the effort, all the years, all the generations of building this, cannot contain the true and living God. So he really is correcting them. He's rebuking them. And he's saying, what a joke it is. The idea that the creator of the universe would live in a little house that you would build for him and need anything from you. Need your rituals, your sacrifices. No, this God made you and you're accountable to him. That's the gospel. Friends, so as we share the gospel with people, we don't want to be wimpy. From this text, part of the gospel we learn is no matter how many bridges you build with someone, you are telling them you've been created by God. He's the director of human history. All of human history is going toward a particular point. He's close to you. Turn to him. You can find him through grace but you will stand before the man that he's appointed as judge. That's part of the gospel. And so this is going to work on me as I share the gospel with people. And I shared a few, I guess it's been a few months ago, Amanda and I were at a gas station, pull into the gas station, I see a guy, my eyes go right to him and I'm like, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with this guy. So I turn to Amanda and I say, let's go, let's leave. I literally was chickening out being the bold man of faith. 
And then I said, no, let's stay. I'm going to that guy. I'm going to introduce myself. So I go up to him, and I can tell he's on drugs. He's got the signs of drug use all over him, but I just feel the love of God for him, and I see that he's in bondage. And I start to talk with him. We introduce ourselves to each other. But based on passages like this, I tell this young guy that he needs Jesus, that he will stand before Jesus one day and give account for his life, just like I will. And that he needs the mercy of Jesus and that Jesus came and he died on the cross and that he could save him from any bondage that he's in. And the guy listened to me and we had a wonderful interaction, but the gospel that I'm presenting to people is different than maybe it was 10 years ago. I'm including elements of this, friends, because it is the good news of the kingdom. I could tell him, your life is not a mistake. There's not a deistic God that's just kind of wound up creation and sitting back and letting it tick. No, God is personally involved. He sees you right now. He's reaching out to you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you, and he can save you from your sins, and you will stand before him and give account. Friends, that's part of the gospel. If we're leaving that part out, we're not sharing the complete gospel, the teaching of the apostles. Acts 2.42, this is what they were devoted to. This is what we're devoted to, the full, complete gospel that's presented in Scripture. Amen? And so we do it in love, but we do it with great sobriety, just like Paul does here. And he's quoting their poets. I mean, he's doing really amazing things in it grace and diplomacy, and he knows some of the influential people that speak into their lives, and he knows it by memory, so he speaks about it, but then he ends by saying, God is not like the idols that fill the city. God is the transcendent creator of all. You're made in his image, not the opposite. You don't get to make God in your image and try to control him. He actually controls you, and you are made in his image, and you're accountable to him, and you will stand before the resurrected Lord Jesus one day. Friends, this is our message, isn't it? And there's urgency to it then, and there's urgency to it now. It is the foundation of the church, what he's preaching here. And it's Trinitarian, frankly. It's about God the Creator, it's about God the Son who was raised from the dead. It's about God the Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrection that raised him from the dead that now fills the church. Friends, if we could do a five-part series on this passage. We're done. Why don't you stand up? But I hope you got a little glimpse here of the gospel and its conversation with paganism and with philosophy. I end with this. There's not a philosopher who's still alive that can save anybody. Is that right? None of them can. The old ones, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, Immanuel Kant, Heidegger, all of these folks are dead. They're not saving anybody. And the pagans and the pagan gods, they're dead. The city of Athens crumbled to the ground. The only one who is alive and has power to save and transform human beings is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We have human history is filled with the ruins of philosophers and pagans and idols, and he is the only one who can save. And friends, he's coming back. 
That's part of the gospel. What I thought we would do before we come and partake of the body and blood of Christ, I want us to say the Apostles' Creed. And I want you to think about this. I've been thinking about this this week. Brock, why in the world do we say the Apostles' Creed? Isn't that for Catholics or the Orthodox? Friends, it is the gospel. The Apostles' Creed in biblical language, in three parts, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the apostolic gospel. And so we're going to say it. Do we have that? One day we won't need it because you'll be able to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Do we have the slide there? We good? Here we are. All right. So I encourage you to commit this to memory, to help your kids memorize it, because it is the gospel. It's the full message. Let's say it together with gusto, and then we'll come partake of the Lord's Supper. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.